AWRI Decanted, a podcast from the Australian Wine Research Institute. Here, grape and wine scientists reveal their latest discoveries and meet the producers who are applying the research in their businesses. Regenerative viticulture. Does it all distill down to the state of your undies? G'day, I'm Drew Radford and burying a pair of jocks under a vine and then monitoring their decay is actually an old school measure used in regenerative viticulture. There is though a lot more involved than that. How much so? Well, a bloke who's been at the forefront of this movement for some time is Richard Leesk from Leesk Agri and he joins us for this decanted podcast. Richard, thanks for your time. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for having me. Richard, I understand you come from a family of farmers. Your grandparents were in the game interstate and your dad got into viticulture. You followed the path, but you've gone down a sustainable path. Why is that? Drew, I think it's one of those things that just creep up on you slowly over time. And um, you know, I've been in the industry for a better part of 25 years, but probably for the last 15, the real focus has been about the environment that we live in and obviously work in, and that includes the people that work with us in our enterprise and, and making that as environmentally friendly and seamless as possible. So it's a long journey with a lot of pit stops along the way, but I think it's just been bubbling along the surface for quite some time. You've got your own property and you produce your own wine, but you've got a business which actually helps people in regards to becoming more sustainable, don't you? Yeah, we do. I mean, obviously... Like most people that are you know, maybe at the cutting edge or the front of the line, if you like, we're sort of early adopters with bits and pieces. We also look after you know, a number of vineyards for clients in McLaren Vale and we're quite open with the way we, we'd like to farm and the way we are farming. And that's created quite a lot of interest, which means that we're driven to share knowledge and create change for people who are interested in this style of you know, farming management. We get energy from that for ourselves and some shared learning because... There's not a one-size-fits-all for what we're trying to achieve here. So, you know, collaboration is really important when you're trying things for the first time and, and having a go. Well, you're very passionate about it. So let's start with the basics. What is regenerative viticulture and why do you think it's gaining momentum? Look, Drew, the, you know, the regenerative agriculture movement has been simmering away probably for a number of years of, in all places of, in the US where it's the, the direct opposite of, you know, what we would call industrial or chemical-based agriculture. So it's got its roots there to a degree. And it's really just based around five to six quite broad but basic principles around land management. So what I've looked at that and studied along the way is trying to take, you know, what is essentially practices that have come out of broadacre and grazing systems and look to incorporate that into, you know, a vineyard system because we're all dealing with the same medium, which is soil, and working on the same basic principles, which is increasing our soil carbon content, which has got so many benefits to production, and also understanding and increasing our soil microbial activity with a view to, again, enhancing production in a really balanced system. That's the crux of it. And then the devil, like most things, is in the detail. Well, briefly, what is some of the detail? Probably the keys to most of this is it comes with soil and soil cover. So there's a lot of interest and talk around cover crops at the moment. Now, that's not a new thing to the wine industry, but what we're probably looking more specifically at now is diversity of cover crop, understanding that 
you know, a number of different plant species and especially out of the four or five groups, you know, grasses, legumes, mustards, radish and the like, you know, if we can have a solid mix of that on the floor of the vineyard, that then gives us diversity above the ground, which should in turn give us diversity below the ground. So we start feeding that microbial colony. In the past, we've had either poor mid-row swards that have just come out naturally or single variety ryegrasses or cereal. This is a real step towards supercharging that activity and hopefully then that then increases our carbon input into the soil, which gives us a whole heap of other benefits. But it's also around the way we do that. You know, we don't want to be doing tillage. We'd like to be doing direct drill, which is what we practice. We'd like to keep the soil covered for the whole year. So we're understanding about leaving more grass. That includes the undervine area where, you know, that's viewed as being competition in the past. But I think there's so much work that's been done that that shows with the right companion plantings, there's not only a not detrimental effect on the vines, but potentially a positive one as well. And then because livestock have become reasonably commonplace and popular in uh, vineyards, then how we manage them in a really actively grazed manner to get the best out of not only the grass and the regeneration of that, again, with the carbon cycle, but also then provide a service that the vineyard uh, means that we can take energy out of the system, which is reducing tractor passes. So all of that in together with a huge reduction to the point where we don't use soluble salt fertilisers anymore, so inputs have come down. You know, this system is starting to manage itself as it matures. You mentioned there are a whole heap of benefits to the soil without actually going into them. So briefly, what are some of those benefits to vineyard soil from this approach? Carbon's the building block on which soil is you know is made. So it improves infiltration rates, it provides habitat for um, microbial activity. Obviously, the organic matter fraction is a humus layer that, again, is great for water capture and holding water. And obviously, oxygen is the other important element in soil. Those two things, organic carbon and organic matter, allow a lot more oxygen into the root zone. That gives vine roots much more available water to play with because we should be capturing more and holding it for longer. But obviously the soil is much more receptive for them to explore and spread their base out so that the volume of soil that they're actually getting nutrient and water from is increased. So this is really where the rubber hits the road in terms of production capability because we're not teaching them to just be in one place which usually is under a drip or an irrigation point we're actually giving them the opportunity to explore the a larger part of the soil fraction because we we should be holding free water which is what we're all about because we just don't where we are in mclaren vale we don't have enough irrigation water to really get through if the seasons are continuing to be hot so we need to capture and hold as much of the free stuff as we can on that free stuff then, Richard, you said you don't really have enough water in McLaren Vale. So is regenerative viticulture reliant on having access to some water? And if so what does this mean for regions where water quality and supply is an issue? I think it has a place. One of the things I like about it is that it's a bit of a user fits place system. So there's bits of this that are going to work for other people or they're going to work better in certain areas than others. Obviously, building carbon, building soil carbon with active plant growth is going to be much easier to a degree in higher rainfall zones because you've got more water to play with, you've got more active biomass growing during the year. That's going to be beneficial to the whole system. We probably sit in the moderate or medium rainfall zone and so we're pretty good in winter but you know clearly in summer we dry out so we're not 
actively growing too much crop then. And that means in the drier areas, you know, in the Riverland and the Sunraysia, that doesn't predicate this not being part of it because I think any actively growing root system and any plant that's actively respiring and using sunlight to produce carbon can add to the soil. Having this soil cover also gives us an insulation layer, which then reduces temperature, which then reduces water loss, you know, helps to humidify the area around the vineyard, which again puts the vines under less stress, so there's less need for water. So there's a whole heap of benefits from just outside the basic capture water and keep it that can be drawn from having these diverse crops growing at least in the winter and hopefully hanging on into the early spring period. Richard, earlier you mentioned having less inputs such as fewer tractor passes. Is it simple to implement a regenerative approach compared to traditional grape growing? And essentially, is it costly? Look, Drew, it's a hard one to answer. I mean, the biggest step is the change in mindset and that comes around you know, changing our paradigms from what we've viewed as the perfect looking vineyard before. Now, I think that's changed a fair bit, to be fair, in the industry, and we're, it's a very proactive one, and we are understanding that more. But certain sites are going to be easier to do than others. It depends a bit on, you know, really the problem area for vineyards is the undervine area. That's the biggest cost zone, certainly the most expensive zone if you're going to move away from herbicide. And it's also the biggest source of emissions if you move away from herbicide because cultivation is the main game there and we don't want to do too much of that so again a lot of work being done by many fantastic researchers around cover crop cocktails under vine that are having some you know i think some really important results that show that if we get the right mix so that's the number one thing is having the right mix for the right area if that's working for us and we've done it in a few blocks here where you can actually then not have to do anything under vine. So all of a sudden you take two to three tractor passes out instantly because that's managed naturally using itself and with a bit of livestock help, which is what we've got as well. So it's a bits and pieces approach. And if you drop one thing out, that's going to lead to another challenge. But if you can start to incorporate them all in, we've found that the systems become quite cost effective once you get everything in place, there's a bit of setup cost, obviously, but once it's running, I'm quite confident that we'll end up you know, being at the lower end of the scale in terms of production cost. Richard, central to this discussion has been carbon. In your opinion, should growers be measuring carbon in their soils or are there other signs and ways of confirming that they're on the right track if they went down this path? The short answer is yes. We probably baselined halfway through a 15-year program, which doesn't mean that we actually would have seen much change, to be fair, but you starts, you start, so that's okay. So I would be. Clearly, carbon's going to become part of the agricultural landscape and it is quite popular without getting into the trading bit of the whole thing. You know, I think in, in intensive horticulture situations like viticulture, you know, if we can show carbon storage and we can use that to offset our emissions, then that's, I think, going to be beneficial down the track. But there's a whole heap of other soil health techniques that give you good practical indications that your system is starting to recover and, and moving on and um, you know the the bury your undies thing where cotton undies get eaten up you know showing that there's microbial activity there infiltration tests which none of us have done for 20 years showing how much water you can soak into the system based on rainfall penetrometers all of these things that you know probably have gone by the wayside because we feel like we've been managing our systems on remote control, we now can go back and use them as tools to see how soil health is starting to come along 
as these systems mature and grow. And I think one of the other fallacies is that this is a year's worth of approach. I actually think that's wrong. I actually think you can see really rapid change over a short period of time, even from one season to the next, with the adoption of some of these practices. So it doesn't have to be a long-haul process. Richard, in my career, I've had the pleasure of interviewing a lot of farmers, primary producers, people in the agri-sector. I have never heard of anyone running soil testing by burying their undies. What are you on about? It, it actually gained a bit of momentum throughout you know, Australian ag because it's a very simple way of looking at a soil biota and their activity and, and whether you've got the right, well, not the right mix, but at least a mix where you bury a, you know, a set of cotton. It can be cotton, it can be calico, it doesn't have to be undies, but the undies thing, obviously, everyone needs a tagline, so bury your undies took off um, for, for a period of time. I can't remember off the top of my head the set period, and then you come back and uncover them and have a look at what the soil, but mainly the soil microbiome's done to them. And obviously, you know, ones that are high in activity end up with just the elastic strap generally, and ones that are low, you know, you've still got a lot of that material intact. So that gives you a really quick snapshot on am I at the high functioning end of soil microbiome or am I at the low end? And then you can get into the detail of, all right, what does that mean? Do a soil life test, find out predominant species and move on to then use some of these cover crop cocktails and compost and the like to trigger and get some biology going back into the systems. Because the intensive way we've farmed either through really intensive herbicide use or really intensive tillage has essentially broken that biological link and that's the bit we need to fix to get these systems kick-started again. Well, clearly I'm not interviewing enough because I haven't heard that term before, but it's a great simple test and I love it. <laughs> Richard, you mentioned trading earlier on. Is carbon farming trading something you've considered in your vineyards? The short answer is no, Drew, but from a different perspective. So our brand is carbon neutral. We've done that because we feel like that's in our DNA. We want to try and neutralise our input into the environment by giving back, if you like. So what we were, what we're hoping our system does for us is get us to a carbon positive zone where we don't have to offset. At the moment, we're not in that position. And I think that's where my personal opinion is that intensive systems are going to need those credits to actually offset against their emissions. It's a different discussion in large landmass areas with low carbon zones where a half a percentage or, a, or even less per change over 30,000 hectares is a lot of carbon. And then if you're only running livestock or a cropping enterprise, then your emissions are probably lower. So yes, you'll probably end up with a surplus. But I'm a little bit dubious of that. The market, it's still very fresh and we're going to be banking ours for use later on rather than putting them on the market at this stage. Richard, earlier on you mentioned, you know, a lot of it's about a change in mindset and you took that very seriously because I understand you've travelled the planet doing a Nuffield scholarship, looking at various farming systems and taking from those and applying to yourself or reaffirming perhaps what you're already doing. Where could a grower who wants to go down this path find out more where would they start you know the internet has got a lot of information on it and essentially you know when i was lucky enough to do that in 2019 and thank you to wine australia and the growers of australia for providing an opportunity for me to do that 
I really just started looking at what people were doing and, you know, mediums like this, mediums like social media, you can garner a lot of information and a lot of my visits just popped out out of those things where I would literally get in contact with people I may have seen on Instagram or Twitter or wherever and say, look, hey, I'm cruising around, can I come and visit your farm? And, and what you tend to find is that people that are in this zone of mindset and thinking and change are really receptive generally to people being interested because quite often in a lot of places thankfully not in Australia as much you know they take a lot of arrows because they're they're at the front of the queue they're doing something that's very different to the norm people generally are uncertain and frightened of change so these people are quite often really warm and, re- and welcoming for people to come and have a look and share ideas and and that's one of the things I like about this movement for one of a better term is that it's very collaborative and we're all learning so the information shared freely and away you go. So I, again, I would just, if it's something that's of interest, plug it in, get in touch with people. The community opens up quite quickly and before you know it, you're off and away. And finding like-minded people and mentors is probably key because there's going to be some setbacks along the way because it's, it's a different way of farming. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing some of your information and what you've learned. Richard Leesk from Leesk Agri, thank you so much for joining us today for Decanted. Thanks very much, Drew. It's been a pleasure. The AWRI Decanted podcast is supported by Australia's grape growers and winemakers through their investment agency, Wine Australia, with matching funds from the Australian Government.